Turning your copy of the scriptures, if you would please, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. We're continuing in our sermon series through the book of Romans. We started this series last year and then took a break to do some different topical series. And now we've been back in Romans since mid-January. It's one of my absolute favorite books. Now, I'm just curious, uh, just by a show of hands, how many of you have, would say you've noticed that we're really not in a huge rush to get through the book? Have you, no- have you noticed that? Uh, we're not. We're, we're really not. I mean, and if, if the Lord comes back before we finish, I'm certainly confident he can pick up where we leave off and we'll do a much better job. Uh, but uh, we are not in a big rush to get through the book of Romans. In fact, this year, I don't remember exactly, but I think we're supposed to go through parts of Romans 8. And then we'll take a little bit of a break again to do some other series. And then we'll come back and pick up where we last leave off. Uh, But if you've been with us since the new year, you've not only been flipping open to the book of Romans uh, every week. You've been flipping open to the same section of the same book each and every week. And there's a reason for that. Because as we begin to look at Romans 6 back in January and work our way to where we are today, which is Romans 7 and verse 7. Paul has gone to great lengths, great lengths. Uh, to uh, open our minds to three distorted views, three of what I'm calling today gospel twists, three ways Paul anticipates people twisting the message of salvation by grace that he's been preaching, particularly as it relates to sin and the law. And you'll see in each of these sections, which we'll briefly review just today by way of uh, starting, uh, for each of these issues Paul addresses, he anticipates the questions uh, that the readers may ask as a result of what he said thus far. So we get to this point in our text, and it's almost like Paul's saying, now, 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 I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to say. I'm a Pharisee. I understand how you, I I know what you're thinking. And he, he poses these questions and, and he tees each of these up by asking the question he anticipates hearing and then answers his own question with the strongest of Greek negatives, uh, the term meganoitu, which, which means uh, of, of course not, of, ab- absolutely not. Like let, let, it not even be, let it not even be confused as a possibility. Certainly not, of course not. As he answers those questions and then goes on to speak truth, truth about the gospel. So let's quickly review. We're in Romans 7 today, but do me a favor, flip back to Romans chapter 6, and let's look at just where we've been since the beginning of the new year as we look at three gospel twists. Three gospel twists. Uh, Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's gospel twist number one. And Paul says, hey, I'm a Pharisee. I know what you're thinking. You think I'm encouraging people to sin so that grace might advance or abound, don't you? To which he answers, Meganoitu, certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? And Paul goes on to talk about the new nature that we have in Christ and how by God's grace we've become recipients of what Christ has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. For example, look at Romans 6 verse 6. Our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Later on in verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also, verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, I like to put it this way. Think saved. Think saved. Think like what you are. Think saved. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Consider yourselves to be dead 
to sin, that it's not even an option. Don't think like the old self. Think like the new man. Don't think like the lost girl. You're a new creation in Christ, a new woman of the faith. Consider yourselves, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And then in verse 15, Paul anticipates another question, what I'm calling gospel twist number two. And he says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? To which he answers once again, certainly not, absolutely not. It's like he anticipated people saying, oh, so you're saying that we're independent of the law of God now? Free to sin as we please because we don't have a master? And Paul says again, meganoitu, of course not. And tells us that we're actually still slaves, but we just have a new master. In verse 16 of chapter 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. In other words, you are the slave to whom you present your life. But the gospel brings about more than just outward behavioral changes. It's more than just a, a better way of life. It's a heart transformation. And the good news that Paul is telling us there is that sin, although still present in our lives, is not unavoidable anymore. It's not unavoidable. It's not just a given that every time sin comes about that we're going to fall prey to it. We're not miserably enslaved to every passion, our every whim, our every thought. Look at uh, uh, chapter 6 and verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you become what? slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms, Paul says, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, verse 22, but now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we spent the last three Sundays, the last three Sundays, looking at what it means to not be under the law, but under grace. We have a new husband was the illustration that Paul lays out for us in the word. A new husband, a new lover in Christ. We're no longer married to the law, no longer bound to it, no longer living under it. And it's been replaced by the grace of our Lord, our Savior, and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And now, after those two gospel twists, right, we come to the third, which we'll deal with today. And we'll pick it up in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. Paul begs the question, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came... Sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it, it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy 
and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you today thankful for your word. Lord, we come before you thankful for allowing us to be recipients of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us life where we would be otherwise dead, spiritually dead, worthy of hellfire and judgment. But Lord, you have redeemed us. You have made us sons. You have made us children of the living God. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And Lord, we only ask, Lord, now that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the truths contained within your word. And that we ask, Lord, for your glory, for your name's sake, that we might be changed by what we hear today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, this gospel twist, in my opinion, is somewhat understandable. I think it's a valid question. Let's face it. If you look at where we've spent the last three weeks in verses 1 through 6, you have to admit that Paul has said some pretty negative things about the law. I mean, he's not painted the law in such a pretty light in the past six verses. If you look at Romans, 7, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 2, Paul begins to unpack that word picture of our relationship to the law, not unlike a woman's relationship to her deceased husband. And just in case you weren't following along, in that word picture, the law is the deceased husband. Husband, which in my book is negative. So it's like here Paul is comparing the law to a dead man. So it, it, and then later on in verse 5, uh, he associates the law with sin as a power of the old regime of death and claimed it actually arouses sin. And even before that, Paul has shown us earlier in Romans that the law is completely incapable of justifying. Serves more as a, just a fault finder. It leaves you guilty because it doesn't bring about a solution. It stimulates sin and brings about wrath. Can you really blame somebody for hearing what Paul has said about the law thus far in the book of Romans and say, so I could be crazy, but I, I, think, I think Paul thinks the law is, is evil. But Paul doesn't sound like a fan of the law. So then in verse 7, Paul says, I bet you you're going to ask this. What are we going to say? Is the law sin? And once again, Paul responds with a resounding, of course not, certainly not, absolutely not. And then goes on to show us what I hope to show us this morning, which is four ways the law has served as God's good gift to Paul and also serves as God's good gift to you and me by describing the ways God's law has served him. So here Paul's going to say, yeah, I mean, the law, it wasn't intended to save, but that doesn't mean that the law in and of itself is bad. Uh, The law in and of itself is a good thing, and it's not sin. So let's not get confused here, and Paul now unpacks what I hope to unpack for you today, four ways the law has served him as a good gift from God. Number one, the law shows us our sin. We see that in verse 7. Look at Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then, Paul says, is the law sin? Certainly not. Now look at this. On the contrary... I would not have known sin except through the law. And he gives an example. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. 
So here Paul's basically saying, I wouldn't have known sin had it not been for the law. Here's one way the law has really served me well in that it has shown me sin. Shown me sin in my own life that I would not have seen without it. For example, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, to covet is when we're discontent with what God has given us and we look onto other things. We look onto even other people, as Exodus 20 tells us, and says, oh, I wish I could have that. I want that. How come I can't have that? And it's a longing for, even a lusting for, an intense desire for something or someone. That's why if you read through the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20, you see God's good commandment telling us that we shall not covet. We shouldn't covet things. We shouldn't covet people. We shall not covet. And Paul's saying, you know, this is the one commandment that addresses only the heart. Have you ever realized that? Of all the Ten Commandments, it's the one commandment that addresses only the heart, showing us our need for the law. Because how else would you have known that coveting is wrong? How else would you have known that to intensely desire something else or someone else is wrong? Maybe you just would have thought, no, I just, just really what I want. I can't have it, but I really wish I could. God's law opens our eyes to truth. Open Paul's eyes to the fact that this would have been a huge blind spot in his life because he would not have known that covetousness was a sin. So he raises that as the illustration to say, I'll tell you what, the, the law is not sin. In fact, it shows me my sin. For example, I now know that covetousness is sin. Now, Paul isn't talking, saying that the law just makes him like generally aware of right and wrong. He's talking about becoming aware of the full extent of his depravity. The full extent of his depravity. And throughout the rest of the chapter that we're in right now, Romans 7, you'll notice Paul uses words like I or, or me. They're first person singular pronouns. So he's giving personal testimony here as to what effect the law has had on his life personally. He's not just teaching the text. He's teaching from experience. He's saying, this is how the law has been good to me. Certainly the law is not sin. And here he's pointing out that God, the Holy Spirit, convicted him of his sin through the law, which as you read elsewhere in the Bible in Acts chapter 9, you know culminates in his conversion on the road to Damascus. Now we're not going to turn there today, but let me briefly sum up to you what happened in Acts chapter 9 uh, with Paul, who was formerly Saul, Saul's conversion to Christianity. It was a rather dramatic one. Paul, who used to be known as Saul, was a persecutor of Christians. And if you look at what he did and why he did it, I think it's fully appropriate to say that Paul was a first century terrorist. He was a first century terrorist who would be persecuting people for religious beliefs, using whatever weapons and whatever things that he could get his hands on to persecute and stop the regime of Christianity, all thinking that he was pleasing God. This was his personal jihad. He was a first century terrorist. And the only reason he didn't fly planes into buildings is because he didn't have access to planes. But he threw rocks. So whatever he could have access to to accomplish what he believed was good, what he believed was pleasing to God, which was the killing of Christians, he would do that. Paul was a first century terrorist. And he was on the road to Damascus to carry out more terror in what he thought would be pleasing to God when Jesus Christ himself appears to him on the road to Damascus. There's a great light. Paul's knocked down. And Jesus Christ himself says to Saul, 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 why do you persecute me? Saul responds in the most common sense response that any one of Who are you? Like, 
What just happened? Bright light, I'm on my back. Who are you? I'm Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And then proceeds to tell him to get up, continue into the city of Damascus where he will receive further instructions. Owen P.S., he's now blind. I love that he doesn't tell him that. He doesn't say, I've I've now struck you with blindness, because that's kind of obvious, right? He can't see. He's blind. He doesn't need to be told that. He then walks into Damascus, and he's blind for three days and three nights, okay? Separate scene, okay? There's a man named Ananias, and God comes to him and says, listen, I need you to go pray over Saul. Ananias goes back to God and says, just in case you're not aware, do you know who you're sending me to pray over? He's been given permission to arrest persecute, bind those who love Jesus. And God never looks at Ananias and says, I know, it's okay, I'll be with you. Do you know what he says? Go. He just repeats the command. See previous line, Ananias, go. Ananias obeys and goes, prays over Saul. Things like scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized. And the man who is going to go to the synagogue to arrest and persecute Christians is preaching Jesus Christ in the synagogue the next day. This is what we call a dramatic conversion story. This is dramatic. Yet in Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 7, when he looks back upon what brought awareness into his life of his sin and need for a Savior, Paul mentions absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing of the dramatic story of how God saved him. You know what he talks about? The law. Paul doesn't say, uh, I wouldn't have known sin if I hadn't been knocked down and spoken to by Jesus Christ himself. He doesn't say, I, I, I wouldn't have known sin if I hadn't seen that great light on that road that day. He doesn't reference anything regarding the dramatic events of his conversion. He says, I wouldn't have known my sin if it were not for the law. And I think sometimes people read the the accounts in the Bible of how people get saved, and I think sometimes they think, well, of course Saul got saved. I'm sure if God was knocking people down and appearing in lights to more people nowadays, more people would be getting saved. But that's not true. That's not true. People oftentimes give a lot of credit to dramatic events surrounding their conversion, but everybody is saved the exact same way. They're made aware of their sin. They're made aware of a need for a Savior. They're made aware of Jesus Christ, and they put their faith and trust in Him. That's exactly how Saul was saved. And particularly during my time in, in student ministry, I remember speaking to people, and this is not limited to students alone, but that was my context, and I remember speaking to different students saying, I don't really have that exciting a testimony. I don't have that that dramatic a testimony. I was brought up in a Christian home, and my parents taught me the gospel, and, you know, I I always knew it. I never really bucked it, and then one day I just believed it, and it was was personal. So it used to be like a family thing, and now it's a me thing, and that's not really that big. It's not really that big a deal. That's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. That's what Paul is talking about here. He doesn't give any credit to the dramatic stories. Now, you might have a dramatic conversion story. And that's great. I'm glad that God has worked through that story to save you. But I think so many times we put so much stock in the details surrounding that that we actually lose sight of the fact that somebody was on their way to hell and is now on their way to heaven. 
And we put so much stock in the details that the people tell. It's like, well, I was driving my truck down the interstate, and it was late one night, and I had too much to drink. And all of a sudden, I ditched the truck over into the side of the road, and it flipped over. But I climbed out, and then it exploded. And as I'm crawling back onto the interstate trying to get away, another truck comes down the highway and just, boom, plows right into me. And the front of his plate said, John 3.16, and it hit me smack in the face. And I woke up in the hospital, looked in the mirror. Thankfully, the letters were backwards, and I could read it. And I saw the gospel right there, and God saved me, and I'm a new man today. Praise his name. And that's fine if that's your story. That's totally cool. That's fine. But that's not everybody's story. And then I think when somebody says, wow, I can't light a candle to the trucker because, I don't know, my my parents love Jesus and read me the Bible. And one, one day I was made aware of my sin and, and I was saved. Don't have the attitude of, really, that's it? That's huge. And Paul talks more about that than he does about the tale of his conversion throughout the scriptures because he's giving glory and credit to where it's due. And that's not surrounding the events. It's not about the road he was on. It's not about how long he was blind. It's the fact that he can see. And it's the fact that he has spiritual life. The law shows us God's standard enabling us to identify sin. That's Paul's point. The law shows us God's standard enabling us to compare ourselves to it. So we see God's standard and I can identify it. I can see God's standard and I can not only identify my sin, but then say, I can't measure up. I I, I can't. That is so holy, so pure. How can I measure up? The law shows us God's standard and shows us we fail to meet God's standard of holiness. And that's what it is. And James 2 and verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, you know what? Guilty of it all. There's no like, ah, come on. Like, I'm a baseball fan. I'm excited about somebody with a 325 average. You know what that means? Like, that's terrible. I mean, I mean, I mean statistically speaking, that means like three out of ten times the man hits a ball and gets on base. That's what excites me as a baseball, if you're a baseball fan, you understand. But, but, but it's not like, how do these stats measure up? How do these stats measure up? God's not excited about your 325 average. He requires batting 1,000. He requires perfection every time. He's not like, ah, 8 out of 10. I mean, who among us is, you know, besides me is perfect. That's fine, 8 out of 10. His standard is perfection. Perfection. Perfect holiness. 100% pure. He is so unimpressed with ivory soap. He looks at 99.44 and he's like, really? That's it? That's filthy. 100% pure. And the law shows us our need. The law showed Paul his need. It wasn't the fact that he was knocked over. Wow, I've got to come to Jesus because I don't want him to knock me over again. Wow, he could kill me and I don't want this. It was the law. And more than just showing us our sin, uh, the second point, the law stirs our sin. We see that in verse 8. But sin taking the opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. 
So more than just showing us our sin, the law serves to stir our sin. And, and Brad mentioned this before, right, with a big stick, just stirring up that which was already in there to begin with. The law shows us our sin, and then the law stirs us our sin. Now, now at first glance, one might interpret the law to be a pretty bad thing, right? Because it may appear that it's provoking us to sin. I mean, you read something like, you know, at the end of verse 8, it says, For apart from the law, sin was dead. So it's like, wow, way to go, law. You've given sin life. That doesn't seem cool. It seems like sin was dead apart from the law. Uh, But that's not the case at all. It's sin, as we see in the beginning of verse 8, it's sin taking opportunity by the commandment that produces in Paul all manner of evil desire. In other words, it's not the law's fault. It's our own sin. Let me see if I can illustrate this to you. Watch this. I've been practicing this. One more time in case you missed that. First service, I used my right hand. That was messy. Why is water coming out of this bottle? You say, well, genius, you are shaking an open water bottle. Why do you think water is coming out of this bottle? Okay. Well, let me shake another open water bottle. Why is water not coming out of this bottle? Because there was no water in it to begin with. When the law comes into somebody's life, it just reveals what was already in them to begin with. And the law comes into somebody's life, comes into Paul's life, no different than it is from you and me, and stirs up that which was already in there. And whoa, then all of a sudden we know what was already in that person to begin with. The law stirs up sin, but the law is not credited for putting the sin into us. Does that make sense? The law stirs up our sin, and as a result of the law coming into our life, we see what was inside of us to begin with. And that's what Paul's saying. I wouldn't have known that unless the law had come into my life and shown me. I wouldn't have known that unless the law would have come into my life and shown me what that looks like in real time. So now I know that the law exists, and now I know that all of a sudden, within me, I have this, this desire to break it. But the law is not credited with having put sin within us. The law shows that which was already in us. That's how the law works. The law gives us a stir. It gives us a shake. And because of what's already in there, our sin is exposed. And our sin takes God's good command and rises up against it, giving us the desire to do exactly what God says not to do. Now... Some of us, depending on how we're, you know, our, our personalities or how we're wired, we can relate to this in different ways. For example, when I moved my family and I to the Commonwealth of Kentucky back in 2006, the statewide speed limit was at the time 65. Okay? Now, the speed limit in the city of New York, citywide, 50. 50 throughout the city. So, so this is cool. 65 everywhere. But then sooner, sooner or later, what do you think happened? Uh, it's only 65. Oh, faster. Wish I could go 70. Well, lo and behold, legislation was passed, speed limit raised to 70. So, and I've been totally content with that speed limit ever since. What are you crazy? Now it's like, oh, 70 is so slow. Why do, we have to, do you see what I mean? 
It, there's not some, some standard that they only created the perfect law. If God only gave us, if, if the law was just like this, if it just, oh, I wouldn't be. No. We have within us all manner of evil desire and the law just comes into our life and shows us what's already inside. Because it shows us our sin and it stirs our sin. You might say, I can't really relate to that. I'm just not as much of a rebel as you are, Pastor. I just, I kind of, I'm a rule follower. Any rule followers in here? Are you just, you're just a rule follower? Oh, you lie. Come on. Thank you. Good. You and, so apparently there's only one. There's two. Thanks, bud. And you say, that's really not me. You know how the law shows you your sin? You try to keep every little bit and fall short. <laughs> every little bit. The way that I see my sin throughout the law is I see myself warring against it. You war just in a different way because you try to keep it all, then don't fall short, and then you realize you're guilty. Either way, the law comes into our life and shows us what's in our hearts, what's in our minds. And this isn't the only place we see this spoken of in Scripture either. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there's no transgression. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 56 says, The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin. You know what that is? It's the law. The strength of sin is the law. The law just energizes what was already there to begin with. God's law doesn't bring about sin. It's in our nature. It lies dormant until God's law is given and then our sinful desires are known for what they really are. And the law only stirs up what was already within us to begin with. The law shows us our sin, right? The law stirs up our sin to then show us what that looks like in real time. And then number three, the law slays us as sinners. Looking at Romans chapter 7 beginning in verse 9. Paul says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. What does Paul mean there? He says, I was alive once without the law. Basically, Paul's saying, I was a pretty big deal. I was doing well. I thought I was fine. Because he saw the law differently than God had intended it to be. He saw the law as a task list. So if you look, uh, flip back, keep your finger in Romans 7 and flip back to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, I mean, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then, Paul reads us his resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning the zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But basically, Paul's saying, I'm a pretty big deal. 
mean, when it comes to the law, I was a pretty big deal. And I took it very, very, very seriously. But the law showed him the truth about himself. So when he stopped looking at it as a to-do list, but then realized by God's grace that this was God's way of showing him his standard for holiness, he says, the, the sin revived and I died. When the law showed him the truth about himself. And that's what we see, go back into Romans chapter 7, when he says, I was alive once without the law meaning without a correct understanding of the law, without a knowledge of this being God's holiness, and I thought I was alive, doing well. But in reality, when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. The law brought about sin to show its face in my life, sin that was already there, and I died. Guilty, I was found guilty, is what Paul says. What Paul once thought was his to-do list that was supposed to bring life. He loved his spiritual resume, but it can't stand up to God's holiness. The fact that God is 100% pure. His inability to live up to God's perfect standard convicted him and brought about not life, but guilt. Not life, but judgment. Not life, but death. Verse 10 says, and the commandment which was to bring life, I thought it was going to bring me life, I found to bring the opposite. Death. And then we see that Paul was deceived by the law, thinking it would make him acceptable to God. But in fact, it did the exact opposite. Instead of bringing about righteousness, it only showed his guilty standing before 100% holy God. Paul was the rule keeper. Don't you wish you raised your hand? You could have been as cool as Paul. Paul was the rule keeper. Paul looked at the law and said, I'm going to do this, 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 I'm going to do this. And it's going to make me right before God. But guess what? He was deceived. That's what verse 11 said. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me. His sinful wrong interpretation of the law deceived him. And instead of bringing about life, it brought about death, spiritual death, judgment, hellfire that he rightly deserved. And Paul realized he was too weak to meet God's standards. Is the law sin, Paul asks in verse 7? Certainly not. First of all, it showed him his sin. Second of all, it then followed up by stirring up his sin so he could see what does that really look like. And then it slayed him as a sinner. Totally brought him to his knees so he realized not only is this law not bringing about life like you think it is, it's actually bringing about death. You're guilty, guilty, guilty. And then finally, the law shows us the sinfulness of our very sin. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Once again, certainly not. Absolutely not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. You see, the reason Paul couldn't make himself right with God through the law is because the law's standard was too high, and it's not a law fail, it's a Paul fail. Do you understand that? It's not that God made a, get this terrible system and You know, God then clicks undo and goes to plan B and sends Jesus Christ. That's not the case at all. This is not a failure on the part of the law. It's a failure on the part of Paul. 
And the law was used in Paul's life just like it was used in every Christian's life to show us our standard for holiness. God's standard for holiness that we're supposed to meet and then to compare us to it and realize no matter how good we think we are, we're never perfect. And we need a savior. We need a redeemer. Think of it this way. Our nature, our sinful nature, is so sinful that it cannot be, it cannot be changed or controlled by the very law of God. Do you think about that? We are so sinful by nature, so rebellious by nature, that not even the law of God gets our attention apart from the grace of God at work in our life. And what we needed was not a better law, was not a different law, was not a cooler law, was not more laws, right? That's what people respond to. Well, we, we need more laws, and that's how you get the Talmud and all these Talmudic traditions. If we need, we'll add this to it and put down this cross-reference and this footnote, and this law really means this, and we got to do that. We need more, more, more. We don't need more laws. We need Jesus. We need a Savior. And it's all pointing to Jesus Christ. Is the law good? Yes. It shows us our need for a Savior, a Redeemer, a Deliverer, a Messiah, a substitute. It's all about Jesus Christ. So where do we go from here? Well, I want to say three things as we close by way of application. The first is, if you're, a you're an unbeliever here in our midst today, maybe you're, you're, you're here because you're looking, you're here because you promised somebody that you would come, I'm glad that you're here. Do you realize that you have more application in this particular text of Scripture than the rest of us who already love Jesus? You realize you have more in common with what Paul is talking about here than the rest of us, at least where you are in your life right now? Because Paul is talking about himself, not as he is as a Christian, but as he is as a non-Christian, like you if you're an unbeliever. He's saying, God used the law to show me my sin. And God's law shows you your sin. And you say, no, I'm not a sinner. I want to look back at you and say, come on. Like, really? Can you look at your life and really say, we're not talking about pretty good. God's standard is Perfection. Precious few people, even people who think they're a really big deal, would say, I'm 100% perfect. And God's law shows you that you cannot meet the standard that God has for himself, and rightfully so, because he is 100% pure. It shows you your sin. And you as an unbeliever, you can look back on times in your life when that law has stirred your sin, when it's shaken you up, and that which is inside of you has naturally come out. Nobody taught you how to do that. Nobody convinced you how to do that. Nobody teaches kids to sin. I mean, there's certain things that just come naturally to them. You're the same way. The law has shown you your sin. The law has stirred within you your sin. And today, the law just stands against you in that it's a standard you can't reach. And judgment, sure and certain judgment, is coming because you are going to die. We're all going to die. 
That's not a scare tactic. That's just saying the death toll remains the same, has for years, one apiece. And at the end of your life, you will stand before the judge, who is God, and you will be found guilty and cast into hell, which is eternal conscious punishment with no mean of escape. But today, today is the day of salvation because you're alive. And you're not being judged right now and being given the sentence that you deserve. But God has gracefully given you this day of life to see you in, to see yourself in comparison to his standard. And given you this opportunity to come to Jesus just like Paul did. Just like I did. Just like every other Christian in here has done. There's no difference. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for sinners like you and like me, was buried and rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of God as the best priest, the best mediator we could ever have. And put all your eggs in that basket. It's not Jesus and my law keeping, Jesus and my family name, Jesus and my reputation, Jesus and my grades, Jesus and my accomplishments, Jesus and my money. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it is Jesus. That's the application for you today if you're a non-believer and you're saying, how do I, how do I apply all this law stuff the exact way Paul did? The exact way Paul did. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we apply this? Do you remember um, ever as a kid saying this line, you're not the boss of me. Can you just give me, do you remember that? Does anybody remember that? You're not the boss of me. Or hearing somebody else, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. You're not the, you can't, mm, mm, you're not the boss of me. My dad can beat up your dad. You're not the boss of me. I think at times, as New Covenant, New Testament believers, our attitude towards the law can be looking back at it as if it's a bad thing. We're so thrilled with Jesus Christ that we look back, we're like, You're, it's not the boss of me. It's not the boss of me. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. We have Jesus now. It's not the boss of me. And that attitude is wrong. So just to make a couple of things clear. Number one, you might want to write this down. God is the boss of you. So just FYI, just in passing, God is the boss of you. Number two, Maturity is exhibited by a believer who doesn't do only what must be done, but does what ought to be done. Maturity and wisdom is exhibited by somebody who does not just what must be done, but also what ought to be done. If they eliminate the seatbelt law in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the mature, wise person still buckles up and doesn't say, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me I have to do that. You can't do that because you know it's still wise for your own safety and welfare to buckle up. It's not a law. The mature person, the wise person, the adult says it doesn't need to be a law. It's safety. They can't tell me what to do. Just buckle up. Maturity is exhibited by doing what we ought to do, not what we must 
do. Now, just because we're not under the law doesn't mean we can't benefit and grow and change and live lives pleasing to God as a result of the principles contained within the law. It's just that our motive is different, right? We still want to be obedient followers of God. We just don't do it so we can earn our way into heaven. So, for example, every time, every time, Sarah, my wife Sarah, makes pulled pork sandwiches, I praise the Lord of the new covenant. I love that I can eat me some pork. I love that I can eat bacon. I eat bacon when I'm not hungry. If it's available, I'm eating it. If it's on the table, are you hungry? No. Why are you eating it? It's there. It's bacon. I love pork. I love that I can eat it. I love bologna. I love ham. I love, I love cold-cut ham. I love hot ham. I love spiral honey baked. I, I love it. I love it. So glad that we're not under the law that prohibits me from eating that. However, you do realize that it's incredibly unhealthy to eat that many, many, many times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like God knew what he was doing when he said, like, don't eat that. So for me to push back from the table of pork for a little is wiser and good and better than me saying, you can't, you're not the boss of me. I can eat as much as I want. Yes, you can, and you can die. That's really awesome. Way to be free. So when we look back at the law, you're not the boss of me. That's not wise. Does that make sense? There's wisdom to be gained from the law that God has given us. And for us to say, woo, we're free. We don't have to be under the law. You don't have to be under the law. So now why don't you just do it because it's wise and good and not because you think you're going to get into heaven as a result of it. You're not the boss of me. This might be too confusing, but I'm going to say it anyway. The Sabbath always has been and always will be Saturday. The Sabbath always has been and always will be Saturday. Nowhere is a change to Sunday. You're not keeping the Sabbath by being here today. You missed it. It's yesterday. Lord willing, it'll be next week. This is not the Sabbath. Of the Ten Commandments Moses received on Mount Sinai, nine, nine are repeated in the New Testament. You'll not find a thing in the New Testament telling any New Testament Christian to keep the Sabbath day holy. In fact, Hebrews 4 defines Jesus Christ as our Sabbath inviting us to enter into the Sabbath rest provided by Christ that is 24-7. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. We're not under the law. However, mature, wise Christians knows that we don't do what we must do. We do what we ought to do. And even though we don't have to take a Sabbath, it's incredibly healthy and good and wise for the soul and the mind and our overall life if we are able to dedicate a portion of our time or our week on a regular basis in which we're a bit more rested and a bit more focused on our great God. You're not the boss of me. I don't have to do that. Yeah, I know. That's really mature. God's law says it's just wise to do. Do, do, do you see what I'm saying? I don't have to Sabbath. I don't have to Sabbath. You can't prove I have to Sabbath. It's not a New Testament. You can't prove it. Okay, well, you know what? God took one before the law came about. And you know what? He probably didn't do it because he was tired, because he's God. So it's a good and wise thing to do. But if we spend all of our time free, I'm free. You're not the boss of me. And we look back at the law in that way, we'll just miss out on a ton of grace and a ton of wisdom. So the law still serves a purpose in our life, even though we're not under it. Does that make sense? Don't look at the law as God's failed plan and Jesus as the one who came in to undo that. Jesus was never a plan B. The law has not failed. We fail, and the law is good and right. 
Finally, and I want to call the band back to the stage so we can sing a final song. I want to show you and tell you uh, something that you're, I can't really show it to you because it's later on in Romans chapter 7. But Lord willing, you'll be with us and you'll see what we're going to talk about. If you have not listened to anything, like if you literally just woke up because you're, someone's with you, it's like, stop. Okay, I've been there, it's fine. Take this home. Take this home. This is what the law, this is what the law is good for you as a Christian. Okay, so wake up. This is your one point of application. The law is a key revealer of my daily need for grace. Daily. The lost person looks at the law and says, that's total perfection. I, I, can't, I can't do it. I need a savior. I need grace. I need favor that is unmerited. Well, the Christian, the one who loves Jesus, which I do, the, the person who already believes, which I do, looks to the law and says, all right, I'm, I'm trying to keep this because I want to please God, not, not to earn his favor, oh, but I can't. Now, I'm not trying to do it because I want to show off to God. I'm trying to do it because I just want to, I just love him. I just want to respond in obedience. I want to be a good slave to my master. I want to be a good child to my heavenly father. And then later on, Paul says, everything I don't want to do, I do. Everything that I do want to do, I don't want to do. And he's like, punch me in the face. What is going on? And I look at the law, and for you and me, as believers, we look at the law and we say, I need God's grace every day, every hour, every minute. What is it that God is convicting you of that you're really, genuinely, wholeheartedly striving to change in and you make progress and you're like, yes. And then you fall back. You weren't going to snap at the kids. You weren't going to think about that. You weren't going to act in this way. And all of a sudden, you snap all over again. You need God's grace every day. Every day. May that be the reminder that the law serves to you and to me as New Testament believers, our daily need of his grace.